Welcome everybody to the 8th September 22 National Town Hall. Thank you all for joining us. So there's the agenda. We'll start off with the National Officer Update and uh, then we'll go down through a number of our national committees uh, ending up with negotiating committee. So a few updates from the national officers. Um, Captain Ed Sitcher was on a plane heading back to uh, Fort Lauderdale. Not surprisingly, his flight was delayed. So he is going to try to join us as soon as he lands. Uh, he's he's gonna be a bit late though. We, we'll probably get most, uh, most way through this national officer update with uh, without him on. Um, so a couple of things here, section six, you're probably all aware the board is in session this week to get updates on our status of negotiations. Um, during this board meeting, we were given potential agreements in principle for a number of sections, but there's not an overall agreement in principle that's ready for board approval. That wasn't the intent of the meeting. Uh, there's been some chatter about rushing to an agreement. So one of the things I wanna hit on here is some of the timeline requirements that we have as we approach a possible TA. And there's really three of them. So the first one is um, the board has to have a, uh, a tentative agreement in full contractual language for seven days before a meeting can be convened to consider it all. So that's, that's the first one. Uh, the next one is once that's done and ready, um, a roadshow has to be announced. Uh, it's got to be conducted. Uh, one has to be conducted in each domicile. It has to be announced at least 14 days before it begins. And at that time, the membership has to be provided uh, with the approved explanation of the TA, uh, the complete text, and a proposed implementation schedule. And if there's any board members who want to submit a comment letter, they can send that out as well. And then the last one is the, the time period for voting. So the ratification ballots, um, those are sent out to all active members in good standing, and they have to be postmark for return no later than 14 days following the date that they are distributed. And that is a requirement of the constitution and bylaws. So realistically, when you put all those together uh, from the time that the TA is completed uh, and ready to be given to the board, it could be anywhere from a month and a half to two months before the final votes are tallied. Uh, the Apple survey, we'll touch on that in a couple of questions that we have later on here. The next town hall, um, the plan is Wednesday, October 5th at 1600. We try to do these at Wednesday, uh, Wednesdays at 1600. It, it deconflicts from the weekends. It's a kind of a middle of the road time for the day. We had to push it yesterday. Um, it, this has been scheduled for a month and the board meeting uh, came up. So uh, bear with us because there may be change next month as well. And then as always, if you've got feedback on how we can make this better, uh, townhall at alliedpilots.org. Okay, so right into the questions. Uh, the first one, what is the union stance on the wholly owned recent massive pay increases? Uh, so I was going to have Ed answer this one, but again, he's not here yet. I'm not going to speak to a union stance, but I can speak to the fact that what this shows is a company's inability to fix problems, uh, or I should say their ability to fix problems with money when they need to do it. The wholly owned have a recruited, uh, recruiting problem. They have a retention problem. They are having problems hiring and retaining pilots, and especially those who have experience to upgrade the captain or check in, who are captains or check airmen. So the only way that they can keep these pilots from leaving the wholly owns for the main line, and this isn't just American, it's all of them, uh, is to pay them superior wages so that um, that are you know on par or above what we have. So realize that with a couple things uh, with this. The first is that those wages were not negotiated, they're offered to them. Uh, and the second is that the wages, those increases aren't permanent, they expire in 2024, and at that point, Americans gonna to need to find another way to stop the attrition from the whole end. So if you're playing checkers with this, you focus on the pay rates right now. If you're playing chess, you focus on the expiration of those pay rates two years from now. Next question, when is the Alpha membership survey being open? It should be out tomorrow. Um, for reference, the survey questions were presented to the board during the nine August board meeting and the board didn't get to approving them. So 
They were brought back up in last week's board meeting and approved. Uh, I work with Phil Comstock at the University of New Hampshire, and they're being processed right now. According to um, uh, the University of New Hampshire, those should be ready to go out tomorrow. Has the work been performed by APA regarding ALPA to determine if an ALPA merger is in the best interest of APA and its membership? Uh, so the short answer to that is no, we haven't done the work because we still need to survey a pilot group to determine whether this is the direction that's the will of the majority of the pilot group. Based on the results of that survey, we're, we will act accordingly. Uh, next question, why does the president want to stall looking at ALPA? Again, Ed's not here, but I, I can answer that one. We're not stalling. It's a process that has to be followed and we're following that process. The survey is the first step in the process. Uh, next question, what are the accounting measures in place to ensure proper pay for the green uh, July debacle? So there's kind of two issues here. If you're referring to the pilots who flew the 200% premium trips, we're gonna support any pilot who isn't properly paid. We're gonna make sure that they get paid just as we've done with similar LOAs in the past. So everybody who flew one of those trips needs to closely review their pay statements. And if they're incorrect, reach out to the contract compliance committee or to the negotiating committee. Realize that the company's first deadline is September 15th, and that's for trips that were allocated as the 200% uh, trips that weren't split. If you flew a split portion of a 200% premium trip, the company has until December 15th to apply that override. So it, it may be a while. And that's a deadline. It's not, that's not a, a, an objective. Um, if you're referring with this to the pilots who declined the flying, uh, and, and the union pay protected them. We've been working on that issue for the past several weeks. Each one of those had to be reviewed on an individual basis. We asked the, their domicile reps to look at that. We just finished that process this week. On Wednesday, we presented the list to um, our accounting department to send to American uh, to pay protect the pilots. So there, there was some pilots who had extenuating circumstances, but big picture, anybody who no-showed or, um, uh, or took a missed trip on that is gonna be um, made whole by the union. And then the last one, why did the union opt to pay pilots who dropped trips via the July 2nd green light event and chose not to fly, get paid 300% out of union funds? So a large part of this um, was discussed on the July 13th town hall when we talked about LOA 2201. I would encourage anybody who wants to hear the full discussion, go back and listen to that video. It's posted on the videos page on APA. But the short answer is your union advised the pilot group that the company reinstated those trips in a manner that was completely extra contractual. We didn't tell the pilots not to fly the trips, but we told them that they were under no obligation to do so. Uh, the pilots were under no obligation to follow that, that information. Uh, in the end, only a third of them that were affected were willing to risk the losing the pay and facing possible disciplinary action for doing what they felt was contractually compliant. Um, the board of directors felt that those pilots shouldn't have been docked to pay and blocked also within picking up anything in the footprint. So that's what prompted the motion to pay protect them. Next question, we have 500 check airmen bigger than some domiciles and we don't have representation. Is the BOD willing to give check airmen seats on the, on the BOD for fair representation? So I'm not on the board, I'm not gonna to speak to what the BOD is willing to do, but if anybody wants to put forth this proposal, you are welcome to propose an amendment to our constitution and bylaws. As it stands, uh, our, our, our representative structure is based on the domicile, not a duty status. And I, I will throw out there because there, there has been some murmurings about this. Um, we, we did bring in the Czech Airmen Group to present to the board this week and, and make some of their, um, um, their desires and concerns known. So that was presented to the board. Why is the union so beholden to Robert Isom's artificial deadline for ATA? We are not. ISOM set us a six September deadline based on vacancy bid and obviously we didn't meet it. 
the board has taken their time to ensure that this is done properly. And as I previously mentioned, there's time restrictions. We can't bypass uh, for ratification of a TA. It doesn't matter what ISOM wants. That doesn't override our CNB. At the August Town Hall, President Sitcher said APA is incapable of riding two bicycles at the same time. Since then, the scheduling committee negotiated changes to TTS and the APA secretary treasurer started the national officer rerun election. The contract negotiation has been negatively impacted uh, if APA is only able to do two things well at once. <clears throat> so um, I was going to have Ed answer this, but again, he's not here. So um, I'll clarify a couple of things. Ed's comment on that uh, about, doing two, two, about doing two things at once was in reference to pursuing an alpha merger, very specifically while being in the end state of Section 6 negotiations. If you want to go back and listen to that on the town hall, uh, it's about 12 minutes into it. I, I did go back and, and check it. With that said, APA as a whole is perfectly capable of taking on multiple tasks at once, but individual APA committees may not be able to do this. So in your example here, you've got the first one references the scheduling committee and the TTS issue. That wasn't negotiated by our negotiating committee. It was a directive from the board that was handled by the scheduling committee. The second example is in regards to the re-election, which is actually handled in large part by our elections department. They're made up mostly of staff from the legal department. Again, the negotiating committee isn't involved in re-elections. Um, there are times when the negotiating committee is pulled from section six duties. The LOAs we dealt with during COVID are a perfect example. The Green July LOA, that's another great example. So to that extent, if they are pulled away to do LOAs, that impacts section six, but other things that occur, unless the negotiating committee is directly involved, that doesn't uh, affect our progress in that. And Trisha Kennedy uh, from legal, when we get to those slides, she's gonna take a similar question to this. All right, now to sound off. So when you send your sound offs, you may not always get an answer, but trust me, you're, you're, you are being heard. So please continue to send them. Uh, like we always do, we're gonna pull a couple here and uh, we'll talk to those. The first one, uh, Rick Vargas from Flight Time Duty Time, Take a quick look. I actually don't know if he is on here, but uh, oh, no, I see you, Rick. Okay, um, so I'll read it off for you. What does the FAA think about our level of fatigue calls? Do they see that as a system working with pilots using the system, or do they see it as an abject failure on AA management's part? Uh, Rick, go ahead. And make sure you unmute, Rick. Chris, are you able to hear me? There we go. I'm clear. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, I'm going to read. Uh, uh, my boss is uh, David Courier uh, has uh, got a really good answer on this, and I'm going to read from his uh, uh, background on this. Uh, and it, uh, here it goes. AA's level of fatigue calls has been considerably higher this summer than, his, than historical. While it doesn't make our lives any better, for reference, the same is true of both Southwest and Delta with their FTDT interactions with the company. And in our case, uh, the FAA continue, continuously monitors the program uh, in a couple of different meetings, a 117 working group and a monthly uh, FRC. Um, and then David goes on to say that he, the question is summed up very succinctly well when the uh, question person answering the question at, says that you speculated the FAA looks at a program with healthy removal numbers and draws to the conclusion that the program is working properly. I.e. the short answer is a pilot calls fatigued, they get removed 100% of the time. And so the FAA sees that as a positive. Um, as far as the continued increase in numbers, they only focus on the operational ones. Um, and while there has been a 
significant uh, uptick in the operational ones. It's not as much as the non-ops. So it's something that's just being continued to monitor. And from the FAA's perspective, it's a program that's functioning properly because of that. All right. Thanks, Rick. <clears throat> Next question. And this sound-off came in about a week ago. So this actually should say it's been three full weeks since the close of the poll with no word to us. What was the turnout in membership participation and what were the results in the select and answer question? So to the first one, the membership response was 56%. Wasn't quite what we wanted, but it, it was good. About 7,300 um, responses in there. I'm gonna show a couple slides that have a breakdown in the demographics. To the second question, I think what you're referring to is towards the end of the survey, they asked if there was comments you wanted to share with the members of the negotiating committee. We don't publish the results of our negotiating polls and surveys because it would allow the company to see uh, not just what we want, but specifically where we prioritize those objectives. And a lot of the responses in that particular question um, had to do that with that. But yeah, I can tell you, and it, it's not going to surprise anybody, um, what people wanted to pass uh, to the negotiating committee were things like finish the contract, go after quality of life, fix scheduling, fix LTD, fix retro, and so on and so forth. Um, but so with that, what I want to show you here is this is a breakdown in demographic, and it's a little bit of an eye chart, but of the... Um, demographic of our pilot group, which is on the left side, and then the demographic of the respondents, which is on the right side. Uh, this slide shows age, base, and division. And what's actually a, a really great thing on this is you can see, if you can see, um, that the difference in the overall comparison is only about one or two percentage points. In other words, the, based on the number of respondents that we got, this was almost identical responses demographic wise to what we have in the pilot group. And then just real quick on the next slide, same thing. And you're looking at equipment, length of service and seat position. So this is all to say that the, the survey results that we got are very much a representation of the pilot group. So please, as we continue with doing electronic surveys, which allows everybody's voice to be heard, it, there has to be maximum participation. Okay, next up, we're going to go to legal. First is going to be Jim Clark, APA Senior Director of Legal. Uh, Jim, the first question for you, what is being done about the companies changing the status quo during negotiations, particularly TTOT and TTS? It's blatantly obvious they've changed our, our, our ability to improve our quality of life by basically preventing any trading. Uh, thanks, Chris. So um, I, I, I'm not going to get into any specific discussions about uh, about particular issues, but I will kind of give a general overview on, on where where we stand with respect to status quo violations and and how we assess um, uh, whether or not company action may rise to the level of a status quo violation. Uh, the status quo violations under under the RLA um, are not uh, do not occur every time the company changes the way it operates during Section Six. That that is what I would characterize as a lowercase status quo uh, change. Uh, so they have they are doing something differently, but that does not necessarily mean that it's a status quo violation under the terms of the RLA and the cases that interpret the RLA. Um, the, the courts have found that uh, there are two types of disputes between parties under the RLA, and those are major disputes and minor disputes. And minor disputes are those that arise out of the existence of a collective bargaining agreement. So um, any dispute that, that comes out of terms and conditions of a collective bargaining agreement are deemed a minor dispute. Those, those disputes cannot be 
uh, a status quo violation. Uh, they are disputes that must be resolved through the arbitration process uh, contained in the collective bargaining agreement. Uh, only major disputes that are, are found to be such by a court are those that can be deemed to be status quo violations under, uh, under the RLA. And major disputes are, are limited in nature. And essentially they are uh, those that are not uh, where uh, the company's actions are not arguably justified by any term or condition of the collective bargaining agreement. So it's a very narrow window uh, to establish a major dispute in the case law. Uh, you know, defines it as such. Uh, we obviously recently uh, made the uh, made the claim that the company's actions with respect to the seat filler issue on day ten of training was a major dispute and a status quo violation, and we filed litigation over that, alleging that there was a status quo violation. As as you know, and the membership knows uh, by now. Uh, the court in that case deemed that to be a minor dispute and um, finding that that the dispute, regardless of the merits of it, uh, that it arose out of the existing collective bargaining agreement. And as such, we were relegated to pursue our, our grievance over that matter through the system board grievance arbitration contained in the collective bargaining agreement. And we could not uh, pursue it in federal court and seek injunctive relief. So uh, it is a it is a um, it is an analysis that we perform on each uh, each time the company engages in behavior that uh, may or may not rise to the level of a major dispute. So we are looking at all of these situations independently, uh, and we we perform the analysis and and where we believe that we have. A viable claim to assert a major dispute and a status quo violation, uh, you know, we we pursue that and we engage with the board and national officers to discuss our options on those fronts. But um, every time the company changes the way it does something during Section Six, does not necessarily create a status quo violation. It's a it's a common misperception. Um, so yes, we understand that that the company is is doing things with scheduling that are diff that may be different and maybe they haven't done before, um, but that does not automatically mean that it is a status quo violation as that term is defined under the law. But we do we do review and monitor all of these things and and certainly as we showed with the the seat filler situation, we we do not hesitate to seek judicial relief where we think we have a viable claim to do so. Thanks, Jim. And then the next question, if we have to rerun the national officer election, why is Ed Sitcher in the position of president versus any other candidate? Okay, well, we do have to rerun the national officer election as to the president and secretary treasurer, because that is that was the decision made by the appeal board, which is our, uh, our established entity for deciding election disputes. So th that that is happening. The ballots went out today for the first round of that uh, that rerun. So that that is happening by virtue of the decision of the appeal board. Um, the appeal board uh, decided, consistent with Department of Labor guidance, that uh, where a rerun is elect is directed, that the 
uh, elected candidates remain in their offices pending the, re the results of the rerun election. That is consistent with uh, Department of Labor guidance. Uh, so the president and the secretary treasurer as elected by the membership during the prior election, they remain in their offices and will do so until the end of this rerun process. That is, that is, the, um, that is the law and that is the appeal board's decision here. So there is nothing, uh, nothing unusual uh, or out of the ordinary with respect to how this is being handled vis-a-vis -vis the, um, the incumbent candidates remaining in office while the rerun is being conducted. Thanks, Jim. Next up is Trisha Kennedy. Trisha, first question for you during the last town hall, the APA president claimed APA is unable to do two things at once. Is that why so few grievances have been settled, settled since we opened section six in 2019? And before you get to that, Trisha, again, I wanna clarify, the thing that Ed was, was talking about was in regards to the negotiating committee, but this is a little bit more uh, applicable here. So Trisha, go ahead. Hey, thanks, Chris. Um, the answer is no. It, management is the party that cannot uh, perform two things at once. Management has been asserting it can't conduct arbitrations and Section 6 table negotiations at the same time. It, it's not APA asserting that. So, and we shouldn't miss the irony here. The multi-million dollar corporation with the uh, lovely headquarters that they have uh, they have enormous resources, and um, they decide to use the same handful of people to cover management's uh, Section 16 and their arbitration obligations. But the labor union, APA, which has fewer resources, we full our, fully staff our Section 16 and our arbitration team. APA has not begged off any arbitration because we can't staff our negotiations in section uh, in section six or in our arbitrations. So not only do we have sufficient staff to cover both of our obligations, um, APA has a plan B as well. In the event we need more uh, hands and lawyers to handle our arbitrations, our recent presidents, um, Captain Carey, Captain Ferguson, our current uh, sitting president, Captain Sitcher, have blessed APA legal uh, and, and give us full approval to tap into other resources like our general counsel's office if we find it necessary to cover any arbitration. So we're full staffed, we're ready to go. It's not APA that's preventing these arbitrations from going forward. Thank you. Thanks, Trish. And then the next question, will there be a resolution for the presidential grievance regarding additional flying? Through scheduling, Cannon does just add flying to a pilot sequence instead of putting that flying into open time. And that, thanks, Chris. And that is a good question. As you know, those topics are part of our uh, uh, targeted items uh, that are subject to the Section 6 negotiations now. So um, obviously, we're dedicating many uh, resources and, and a lot of effort to get them resolved. And uh, also, uh, uh, I, I can't guarantee, but um, cautiously optimistic that those issues will get resolved. In the meantime, I encourage our pilots, if that happens to you, uh, please go on the online grievance form, submit the event and supporting documentation so we can note that and add you as an affected pilot to those pending grievances. Thank you. Thanks, Tricia.
Next up is the IT Steering Committee. Uh, before I bring up First Officer Phil Johnson, uh, who is the chair of the IT Steering Committee, one of the questions that was submitted uh, was related to something that Philip and his team are working on. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read and answer that real quickly here. I heard APA was trying to work with the creator of Check My Pay app to make it available for all pilots. The real question is why does APA allow the company to not accurately pay its pilots? The short answer is APA doesn't allow the company to not accurately pay our pilot. That is ineptitude that the company completely owns on their own. It's unacceptable that there needs to be a service to ensure that we're properly paid, but as is the case in many instances, we do for our pilots what the company won't. Um, I will say that for years, we've had a manual service within APA that does this. If you look on the screen there, that's an address you can send um, your, your um, if you have a request for a pay audit, you can send it to pilotpayaudit.alliedpilots.org uh, and they'll take a look at that. So with that, Philip, you're up. If you want to talk about this and your, uh, your other issues that your team's working on. Sure. Thanks, Chris. Hey, guys. Good afternoon. Uh, as Chris indicated, we are working on that automated pay audit effort. Uh, high level, um, we're looking to deploy pretty quickly, but uh, we'll have a real-time HI1 synthetic type display that uh, has real-time data feed with that. And the first validation efforts will be focused on kind of the low-hanging fruit. That includes sequ sequence protection pay, RA premium pay, sit time calculations, and other typical pay balancing entries um, that we expect from AA. Uh, we are working on that right now, and we're leveraging uh, ITS committee member Vince Treverton. Vince created APA Reserve uh, for a clean, user-friendly interface, uh, as well as integrating with the mobile inbox for the communication part of that tool as well. Uh, also collaborating in-house with um, APA staff pay expert Kim Penrock to identify the roadmap of follow-on payers to target. Um, so expect updates on those coming out in the next few weeks. Um, down below on the slide there, you see uh, we just released our latest mobile application. It should hit the stores yesterday. Uh, you can see the version and build information there to make sure you're up to date. Uh, latest high-level um, features that were released in that was an updated dashboard. Uh, so we removed removed a few icons and made them also sortable based on usage. So uh, so that entire dashboard now is um, moves based. If you select it, it moves based on your usage. So most use icons will float to the top, which is a feature that's been requested quite often. Um, also, a lot of Android updates. We've been chasing some bugs on the Android side of the equation, and we pushed out a lot of fixes on Android, as well as syncing across multiple devices, specifically with the inbox. So whether that's deletions or new incoming messages, once they're read on one device or deleted, uh, that syncing is a lot more efficient. Um, just on the mobile development, the approach moving forward, it's been a few months in between deployments um, for new apps to production. We really want to get that streamlined. So starting after this release, which just came out yesterday, we're expecting to deploy a production level application every month uh, just to rapidly deploy new features as well as bug fixes and get those out to the members uh, versus having those stack up. So I'm excited to see how see this new approach and, and the team is excited to get this implemented as well. Um, let me see here. A couple other projects, just real quickly, things that we're working on, you may or may not have heard of, um, but some other major pilot-facing projects that are approaching the final stage of development and deployment. Uh, that's the second generation uh, trip info tool. So underneath Mobile Saber, there's a trip info as well as commuter information tool as well that Pat Clark deployed uh, many years ago. And we're working with Vince Treverton and the team to update those, bring them uh, more into the, the, the current look and feel as well. Um, and also we're 
continued to work and very close to fielding uh, our new website, which is was a complete rewrite. We refer to that as Web 2.0 internally, and that's focused on a more friendly functional user interface, as well as a really highly focused federated and curated search piece. So we know search has been very sorely um, or poorly deployed in the current website. So that's really a great feature and we're seeing great strides and hope to have that out uh, in the first quarter of next year to the membership. Um, other projects that we're focused on uh, right now in the planning phase would be a follow-on commuter information tool as well that I just discussed, as well as the second generation mobile application. So we'll be working on those next year and hope to have a lot more communication and information out to the membership via the mobile inbox. Um, any questions, please let me know. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Phil. And uh, let's see here. Anything else you wanted to, to hit on with this? Yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot we had another slide here. Um, uh, just wanted to bring up the mobile statistics. We really have a, uh, you know, a, a really robust application in terms of usership. Right now, we're just about 13,000 unique mobile users. And as you can see there, we quite heavily, the pilots use iOS versus Android. Um, Android's a little bit harder to develop towards based on all the device um, device OS uh, combinations. So uh, we did target that this development cycle and should put a lot of fixes out there. And then uh, also about little a uh, little over 11,000 users have activated the mobile inbox. If you haven't, I'd, I'd highly suggest that you do that. We're really making leaps and bounds there on things that we can uh, notify the pilots about, whether that's just communication or real-time uh uh, things affecting their trip at, at that specific moment in time. So uh, a lot of new features will be coming out through the inbox as well. Great. Thanks, Philip. Yes. Next up is scheduling committee. Uh, Captain Drew Pullman, chair of the scheduling committee. All right. Can you hear me, Chris? Yeah, loud and clear, Drew. All right. Uh, Drew Pullman, scheduling committee. Uh, obviously, everybody knows TTS. Lockdown. We have a lot of forced reds in TTOT uh, pretty much every weekend uh, for the narrowbody FOs uh, and several other bid statuses throughout. Uh, it's end of the month transition right now where we went from August into um, September is also locked down for the first five days due to the holiday weekend. So it should be lightening up now that we've gotten past that somewhat. I will say you're probably more likely going to have better trade opportunities right now in TTS than you will in TTOT due to the lockdowns. So you might wanna consider having bids in both. Um, the biggest problem with the system right now isn't that they're necessarily tightening the screws on either one of the systems. Um, it's more of the imbalance of pilots to flights. They've got more flights required out there than they've got pilots able to fly them. So that in that, in itself looks at the system and sets it up to a point that it doesn't allow certain trades that it would have otherwise. Uh, the next other topic I wanna to discuss is the vacancy bid out there. Everybody knows it opened up, um, should be closing on the 21st, should expect a prelim around the 11th and maybe a final around the 18th. Um, I just wanna to stress to everybody to make sure you update your bids. After every prelim we get, we get pilots saying, I forgot I had this, or I didn't know I had this, and I didn't understand what I was doing. If you have questions, give us a call. We're there 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, we have people that can answer the phone for you. If you don't get an uh, answer right away, send emails. Uh, we have multiple pilots on staff or on, on call that can answer emails and phone calls if they if you end up reaching us after hours on this. Uh, make sure you have on there what you want to fly. 
more than where you are now. If you are where you're at and you don't want to do anything, you should have nothing in that bid. Nobody's getting displaced in this bid, so that you don't even have to have any displacement bids in there. It'd be completely blank, and that's the safest way to go about it at this point with uh, the way it's set up. So make sure what you have in there is what you want more than where you are currently. That's all I got, Chris. You got any questions? All right, thanks, Drew. Next up, contract compliance, BJ West. And uh, as we've been doing, I'm gonna have BJ lead into this. Um, we're gonna pull up the polling here, just test your contract knowledge and we'll have everybody run the poll while BJ runs through the rest of the, uh, his information. BJ, you're up. Hey, how's it going? Uh, thanks for having us. Uh, all right, this time we're actually gonna start out with the poll question, uh, the contract uh, question of the day, so to speak. How many days of notification are required for training? Let me get that pulled up. Uh, and then are we so all, I'm gonna launch? They're all three going to launch at once. Okay, perfect. The uh, next question, uh, can scheduling move a DFP for training and can scheduling remove a DFP for training? So can they delete it? We'll get those going. Um, while we're uh, answering those, uh, the, the latest trends uh, that we've got going, uh, we've got issues with a lot, well, not issues, but a lot of questions uh, surrounding the 100% pay. Uh, sequences or the 200% sequences, uh, those are not reflecting on your HI2. So if you're savvy, you go in there and you're looking for that extra 50% uh, pay that you're you're expecting to see, you're not going to see it on your HI2 or your activity sheet uh, after closeout. Uh, those, uh, according to the company, those will be paid on September 16th or 15th, rather, uh, in accordance with the agreement. However, uh, you're going to have to audit that on your pay stub when those come out on Monday or Tuesday. So when those pay stubs come out, uh, review that, and you should be able to see the extra pay located uh, for those sequences on your pay stub itself, not on the HI2. Um, we had an issue get brought up uh, yesterday from uh, via John Karam uh, from an LAX pilot that was a, a good reminder for us uh, that we should probably calm, uh, as well as uh, get the word out regarding SIT, uh, sit rig, uh, 15E4 specifically. Uh, for premium reserve pilots or OG pilots. So these are reserve pilots flying on or into or out of DFPs. Uh, if you fly a sequence with SIT, you are entitled to that SIT time above guaranteed and at premium pay rates. Uh, the company currently does not have the programming to capture that automatically. It's a manual process and shocker, uh, they don't manually capture it automatically, if that makes sense. So uh, unfortunately at this juncture, what we're left with is uh, we're basically requiring pilots to send a direct connect uh, to capture that time um, on their own. Uh, and we don't like that any more than you do, uh, but it is your pay. You're owed it above guarantee. So if you have a, a sequence that's premier OG with sit time in it, and you wish to be paid above guarantee, which you should wish to be paid above guarantee for, uh, file a direct, direct connect and they will pay that. Uh, there's still a lot of uh, mistrips associated with contact. As pilots transit bases, that's associated just with the massive uh, rescheduling and reassignment issues we're seeing. Uh, just remember that you're not required to own a cell phone. Uh, there are contact requirements at certain times. Uh, just know when you're supposed to be contactable and when you're not. Uh, there's been a lot of issues with HIRPB, uh, specifically RAT preferences. Sequence preferences get honored for whatever reason. RAT preferences, the language says that they should be honored to the extent possible. Uh, what we're really seeing is uh, the company not honoring them at all. And in a lot of instances, they're just issuing all pilots uh, bid wraps uh, because I guess they line up okay. Um, so 
if, you know, 2.30, 2.45, you see the wraps drop for the next day and they're not anything close to what you were expecting or what you bid for, uh, give them a call. The easiest way to protect yourself is be aggressive. Make a phone call immediately before the end of DOTC so that the situation can be rectified. Um, and then after that, uh, we're left with with kind of crappy language. So um, always protect yourself as quickly as possible before the end of DOTC if they haven't honored your wrap preference for the next day. And then lastly, uh, there's a ton of new hire questions right now, which is great. That means there's a lot of new hires hitting the line. Um, a lot of it's very baseline stuff for anybody that's been here for a minute. Uh, that just means that if you're a new hire, uh, you need to get into the books immediately as far as your responsibilities to the company when you are on short call reserve. Um, a lot of these questions are like, where should I be for this wrap? Uh, do I need to be in my base? Things like that. So um, if you've got any time during training to just read uh, a few of the highlight reels from the reserve user guide in Compass or any of the Compass docs, uh, or if you've got time to take one of our four or eight hour uh, training sessions, uh, by all means do that uh, so that you do not wind up with a missed trip uh, or worse on probation. So that said, uh, I think we can go to the poll answers. Hey, BJ, and before we do that, can you clarify, there's a question here. Did you say Sitline is paid at premium for reserves, flying premium or OG or above guarantee? It is. It's it's all above guarantee and a premium uh, premium sit does pay premium. So the sit time generates its own little premium. Perfect. Thanks. All right. Here we go. All right. So uh, five days notice for all training. And uh, there is one exception to that, uh, the publishing of a trip award selected by a pilot, which requires requalification, satisfies the notice. So basically what that's saying, uh, for a reserve pilot, you always require five days notice for all training events. Uh, if you have a line award and they choose to train you uh, over that line award, uh, the award itself satisfies the notice of five days. Can they move a DFP for training? Uh, the answer is yes. For a requalification program, it can be moved to a later date in the month, uh, and they cannot remove it. They can't just delete your DFPs. They can move it, but not remove it. All right. There you should be seeing the, uh, the results of that poll. All right. Thanks, BJ. On to the next safety committee. We've got a couple folks here. Take this poll down. All right, we've got uh, Craig Stroud, David Edwards, and Shannon Hankins. Um, Craig, are you going to lead off with this? Sure, I'll be happy to. Thanks, Chris. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, loud and clear. Okay, sounds good. Uh, I've only got two uh, topics I want to cover. Uh, first is uh, we always have a, a series of questions that seem to be commonly asked. I'll call them the top four. Uh, I'll run through those quickly. Uh, First one is uh, a lot of calls, emails will come in. Should I submit an ASAP report? Uh, if that little voice in your head is telling you that you should, yeah, that's the answer that we're going to give you. Um, it's your union dues. There's no award at the end of your career if you haven't filed an ASAP report. We're in the business of data collection. Uh, we can't uh, affect the change if we don't have the data. So please fill out ASAP reports. Uh, do we review ASAP reports? The quick answer on that is no, since there's an MOU that protects uh, the ASAP program between the company and the FAA. We have agreed with them that we will not coach or counsel ASAP reports. However, we do review SERS reports because they are unprotected. Typically, they go to a lot of people in the company. That's a factual report. 
the way to get that reviewed is to send an email of your proposed SERS, SERSreview at alliedpilots.org. And it's also on the APA safety website. If you didn't get it, uh, you can click on it and it'll bring up your email program. The 24 hour clock has been removed in the latest AC, which was about two years ago, 120-66C. That covers our ASAP program. They took away the 24 hour clock. It now is a timely manner. So please try to get it in while the details are fresh, but there really is no need to worry about it or to sweat the details as far as where am I gonna be? When do I have to get it in? Uh, I'm not gonna turn away data. Uh, it's more important that I get it than I uh, have to uh, worry about the timeliness on it. Uh, then the last one is uh, when you go into ASAP, if you're trying to submit a report, you don't see it that's populated by uh, FOSS. A lot of times there's not great uh, data transfer between the two programs. If you page down to the bottom of all your flights, there's a generic entry. Uh, you'll have to fill out a little bit more information because it's not pre-populated, but you can fill out a report that way if it doesn't appear, or if you're trying to submit an ASAP and it's a general safety concern, select the, uh, the last entry on there. Uh, the last uh, item I want to throw out, the CMO is really making a hot topic of ADSB mismatches. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, we sent out some guidance on it uh, August 16th on a CCI. I think the title is about the same. Um, please be very careful if uh, you're in a basic Airbus. If you have a stub flight, there's a couple other issues there. But if you're entering in a flight number and it doesn't meet the way that it has to go into the box, it'll develop a mismatch on the back end. ATC is going to start going to all ADSB in the future. They're really cracking down on this hard. We know that they're threatening enforcement action on pilots. So please take the extra time if you have to put a number in there manually that it's in the proper format. That's all I've got. Thanks, Chris. All right, thanks. Uh, David, I Shannon, I know you had something. You wanna go next? I see you there, Shannon, you gotta unmute. How about now? Hey, there you go, loud and clear. You got me now? Yeah, okay, yeah. So uh, the Safety Culture Transition Ad Hoc Committee has had a couple of different uh, uh, projects they've undertaken. Uh, uh, one of them specifically that was uh, has been a little bit of a hot topic this last week or so is uh, pilots being assigned uh, some of the maintenance ferry flights, uh, both domestically and internationally. Uh, again, we've been discussing this quite some time and uh, some of the uh, procedures uh, that are in the uh, FOM uh, and in the GPM seem to have uh, uh, some issues uh, between the departments. Uh, what we'd like to stress to our pilots, uh, which we've had several call in uh, this last week, uh, is to be on extremely high alert when you, uh, if you do get assigned one of these, to uh, uh, very carefully uh, evaluate um, the, uh, the, the situation that you have and the reason you're moving the airplane. Uh, we'd like to st stress and remind that on these international uh, MFFs or special flight permit flights uh, that for these aircraft that do not meet the standard of airworthiness that 
permission from each country being overflown must be obtained. Uh, this is something that the pilots can check uh, where they're flying in the flight plan and uh, request that permission uh, uh, either through MOC or dispatch. Um, we would also like to remind pilots that um, dispatch, uh, who we're actually meeting with tomorrow, uh, there's been a little bit of confusion that when dispatch notifies ATC that you're passing through or over uh, a particular country's airspace, uh, that in itself is not permission uh, to operate that flight. Uh, that permission should actually come from the particular DGAC or FAA equivalent uh, from their uh, uh, from a different department. Uh, we, we highly recommend that pilots operating these flights uh, uh, get that permission in writing from that host country, uh, which MOC should provide. Uh, the second issue that we've run across is we want pilots to be extremely alert and possibly do a little review if they are performing one of these operations where they have a system deactivate. Uh, it's, it's, it's highly recommended that pilots go in and review the MEL, uh, CDL uh, requirements and restrictions. Uh, and these are of utmost concern because we want pilots to, if assigned these, uh, these operations to think about what might happen with a subsequent system failure. Uh, uh, for example, if, uh, if you're being dispatched to fly an aircraft uh, back from Europe or from Honolulu, let's say with a, uh, a pack issue, uh, you, you may want to review your particular aircraft's procedure for both packs off. Uh, certain aircraft, if uh, if you were to have failure of both packs require you to land the nearest suitable, or if you're being dispatched with one pack to remain within 60 minutes of a suitable landing area. And uh, that may be a consideration that you want to, uh, uh, to take into account. We want pilots to remember that the, the QRH uh, it is, is written in conjunction with the MEL and the CDL. And so there are certain uh, special flight permit flights that uh, may be dispatched, could be dispatched, let's say, I'm not saying it's a good idea, that if you did have a subsequent system failure, would essentially render your QRH ineffective uh, to handle it. Uh, for example, if a loss of, uh, of, of both packs on certain aircraft, your loss of smoke, fume elimination, and equipment cooling, and that sort of thing uh, may be placed in jeopardy. And the last thing you want to be is uh, uh, caught out where you can't get to, uh, to an airport. We want to also uh, stress to pilots that if you do get assigned one of these, um, one of these flights, uh, to be sure and contact either the safety committee or the MTA. They'll steer you to someone uh, who will be able to step you through uh, the particular policies, procedures, guidance, and uh, uh, paperwork drill on uh, on some of these uh, flights. Um, it's one of those things that uh, uh, you, you may not do uh, in a very, very long time. And when you do get one, uh, I would highly stress that you guys contact the safety committee uh, or the MTA and, and have them help, uh, help you out with uh, what to look for and how to stay safe out there. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Shannon. Uh, David, do you have something for the group?
I can see you're unmuted, David. All right, so Captain Sitcher is actually up. He is, uh, has landed in Fort Lauderdale. So before we move on to the next one, uh, Ed, come on up. You got uh, some words for the pilot group. Hey, Chris. Uh, thanks for holding the fort down. You've done a great job. I've been tuned in on the way back in. Sorry about the delay. The flight was delayed and the tunnel was shut down. So it took a little longer to get home than I was anticipating. Um, just to circle back on, on some of the things that I think are most important to the membership right now. I know we, we kind of touched on these issues, but I would just like to tell you where we're at in more detail on them. First of all, you know the fact that the lights are locked down is completely unsat. And we've gone through and figured out what our options are. First, we tried discussions with the company. Absolutely no progress on that. They basically told us to shut up in color. And uh, then what we did is we examined uh, a previous grievance we had had on locking down the lights with uh, arbitrator block. And we determined after looking at that, that that really wasn't clear that the company would go ahead and have abrogated the 96 hour maximum lockdown to turn the system off. And really that's what it comes down to. Can the system be off for more than 96 hours? No. Was the system shut off? Technically no, but if no trades can occur, then in, in my opinion, it was off. So what we've done is we filed a presidential grievance on that. It's the, the highest priority grievance. We're gonna put that in front of block as soon as possible, but realize uh, there's a limited amount of uh, gold at the end of this rainbow, because even if we decide that we win this grievance, TTOT is sunsetting, and all we're going to be left with is TTS. So we're trying to incorporate TTS into the presidential grievance. In other words, we're trying to prevent them from leaving us high and dry on a viable trip trade system in the future. Unfortunately, this thing is getting a lot more complicated than I would have imagined. I couldn't think of a worse time for the company to be absolutely angering the membership than right now. We're, we're in the end game of getting a TA, and the more that the company angers us, the more work rules and pay the members are going to require uh, because of the resulting trust deficit that they're creating. So I couldn't think of a worse time to do this, but this is the way they roll over at AA. So we'll continue to fight for the members hard on that, and uh, we'll try to get this done. You know, that is the priority right now is getting that contract. We're not rushing the process. But sooner is obviously better than later. For three and a half years, we've been negotiating. We've got nothing to show for it. We've made more progress in the last few months than we made in the previous three and a half years. And this kind of bleeds into the ALPA conversation. I know, Chris, that you mentioned this. Uh, look, to think that we could go ahead and just change the placard on the door in the middle of negotiations is a gross overstatement. There's hundreds, if not thousands of things that have to be done if we're to change unions in the middle at any time, let alone in the middle of the end game on negotiations. I mean, we're talking about rejiggering the staff, dismissing staff, changing the building ownership, shutting down holding companies. I mean, we're, we're going to merge our GAC or get rid of our GAC. We've got to merge our safety culture, uh, our safety uh, uh, committee in there. I mean, there, there is so much stuff that it is absolutely an impossibility that it will not delay this tentative agreement. If, if we want our, our what's due to us sooner rather than later, we'll focus. That was what I ran on the presidential campaign for, a laser focus on getting this contract and getting it as soon as possible. It doesn't mean we're rushing it. 
That doesn't mean we're jumping to uh, CEO Isom's calls, but we would like to get this thing sooner rather than later. And I promised you we would lead the industry. That is exactly where we're going. So that's where we're, our focus is going to remain. We're starting that, uh, as you mentioned, Chris, the uh, survey on the ALPA uh, is going to go out this Friday, should go out tomorrow. So we're going to try to do this in tandem, but there is just no way we could change unions while we negotiate for a contract and expect to, to get that contract in the same timely manner that, that we're on track to get it for right now. And then finally, Chris, you you, uh, you answered the Czech Airman question, which I was uh, I was ready to and prepared to go ahead and answer. And you answered in a fine fashion. Look, we don't have any subgroup, whether it be, uh, you know, a particular bid award status or anything else that has their own representation. It 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 would be a stretch to think that, you know, the Czech Airmen, even though they have their own section of the contract in Section 12, would have their own domicile. Because remember, at the end of the day, you and I don't get to choose who the Czech Airmen are. Management chooses them. So effectively, what we're saying is we're going to allow there to be a base, a domicile that doesn't really reside at any specific geographic location. And they're going to be at our board table and they're going to be there changing our work rules or at least weighing in on changing the work rules. And they're, they're not even, uh, they're, they're selected almost entirely of management and, and they can move around as they see fit. The, the, now, the Czech airmen are represented and we met with them this week. They, they addressed the board. Uh, absolutely, we have kept them involved in this uh, tentative agreement quest that we have. But to, to think that we're going to go ahead and create a separate domicile of just Czech airmen, I think is, is probably not the best idea. As far as the deadline goes, let me just address that real quickly before we roll on, because I'm taking way too much time. You know, um, I made no secret of the fact that, that Mr. Isom had said, we got to have this agreement by September 5th or else. Well, September 5th has come and gone. The bid, the bid run went out today on September, uh, or actually yesterday on the 7th. And, uh, and it really went out with, without any changes. And, and unfortunately, we don't know if there would have been more wide body flying if we would have made an agreement. But I made it perfectly clear to Mr. Isom that we have a process. That process in a, is in order of 50 days to go ahead and get contractual language to the board, to give them the seven days they need to digest it, to have the board actually deliberate on whether or not this tentative agreement is good enough to send on to the membership, then to have the membership look at it with enough time to formulate questions, have the road show that we need to go ahead and get our guys out on the road and actually answer those questions, and then have a vote on it that takes enough time so that everybody can fairly respond to the vote. So we are still, I mean, best case, if we had, a, if we had it in contractual language today, we would still be 50 days out on the tentative agreement. So quite frankly, we're looking at November, but I can tell you that every drop of our energy, every ounce of resources that is an APA is focused on getting you that contract that you deserve as soon as possible, but it's gonna be on our timeline, not his. I'm gonna hand it back over to you, Chris, thank you. Hey, thanks, Ed. All right, I think we've got Dave Edward from, from Safety Up. He switched over to a, a phone line. So uh, Dave, if you hit star six, you should be uh, you should be able to unmute yourself and talk. Hey, Chris, this is Dave. Can you hear me? Hey, there we go. Loud and clear. All right. Sorry for the technical difficulties. I'm Dave Edwards. I've been asked to give a status update on the progress of the new electronic aircraft maintenance logbook or EAML. 
I know many of you have been using the SAFE app uh, in addition to reviewing the paper ML, but for those of you who are not familiar, I recommend you look at the Flight Ops Bulletin 22-05 Alpha in Comply 365. The bulletin has a comprehensive outline of the program, but in general, the SAFE app displays the electronic master record of each aircraft logbook. Since the paper AML is the official record, the electronic AML sometimes lags due to delays with maintenance technicians updating SAFE. I get that uh, question a lot. Uh, when we move to the electronic AML as the official record, we will see uh, updates real time and the pilots will get significantly better visibility on maintenance history, actions and work and upcoming maintenance. It'll be a really good thing for us. If you're currently using the SAFE app, you probably agree. You can see a lot of information just at a glance. In addition to the history of maintenance actions, you'll find past and future aircraft routing, aircraft location, ETAs and EDTs, color-coded status for maintenance holds, items in the mic sheet, aircraft damage log, and among many other things. Although the AML program is governed by the FAA during this transition, the APA is working with AA Maintenance to develop an EML, EAML product that we're all going to like. The electronic AML program is projected to be implemented uh, as our official maintenance record company-wide sometime next year. Now, program development and testing might be completed as early as the second quarter of 2023. However, the transition might be deliberately delayed beyond the end of next summer just to avoid change fatigue. So we just entered the alpha test phase where we have a select group of 15 pilot volunteers that are currently making write-ups in the EAML during their regular sequences, and then they provide feedback to the program managers. The paper AML will be the controlling document, so they're using both the paper and the electronic during the test period. The alpha test is being conducted uh, basically to work out all the kinks, and getting line pilot feedback early will certainly help with a smoother transition to our all-electronic version. The next phase of the program will be the beta test. As early as October or November of this year, we will request approximately 250 line pilot volunteers to test the Safe App discrepancy write-up features and give us feedback. That test group will likely include captains and first officers and mirror how AML entries are currently made in both the wide body and the narrow body fleets. That's the, the big picture on it, Chris. If you have any questions or are interested in volunteering for the EAML beta test, please send me an email at dedwards at alliedpilots.org. And my contact information is also listed on the APA website under safety committee members. That's it, Chris. Thank you for your time. All right, thanks, David. Next up, we're gonna to go to Compass Project. Carrie Smith, you're up. Hey, everybody. Greetings from Omaha. Um, thanks so much for being here. Pilots participating in this, I really appreciate you taking the time. We're an hour in, so I will just give a quick uh, touch on what Compass is up to and how um, you can use Compass. And also, uh, we, we need sponsors. So um, we'll talk a little bit about that process. If you, uh, can you go to the next slide? Thank you. So in 2022, year to date, we have hired 1,466 new pilots. 
we have 275 pilot or 275 sponsors and the pace of the pilots that are coming to American Airlines the pace that the company says they're using is 45 per week it hasn't quite been that much in the last few weeks uh, if, if anybody is paying attention, you know that there is a jam up, a log jam in training. So most pilots are hired, they come for two weeks and then they sit for two months uh, before they go to aircraft training. But according to American, they're going to continue at that pace. Just to give you a historical reference, prior to COVID, we were hiring 30 pilots every two weeks and that was pretty rapid fire. So we're, we're more than double the rate of historical hiring. Compass doesn't just help new hires. We help pilots that are returning to work. You guys know about the VE LOAs that uh, were part of the COVID uh, package that we had where pilots are able to take a leave of absence of up to three years. Well, some of those pilots are hitting those returns. So they're coming back. We've had 30 pilots returning from VE LOAs so far this year, 80 pilots coming back after being out on long-term disability and 33 military returns. And we have a great support relationship with the military affairs team and they help to support those pilots in their return. Year to date, we've had 755 new captains that have uh, been offered the Compass services. We have a whole captain support program uh, just because it is a move to a new seat. Uh, family navigation, we support new moms. We support dads that are about to uh, become parents, first time, second time, third time, partners in those processes. And that is a service that is uh, very unique to be a pilot and be a new mom or a new parent. It's a part of your life where you're experiencing a lot of change. And there's a lot of things involving FMLA and the whole process of being a mom uh, with with a kid and flying. Um, and so family navigation does a great job taking care of those pilots in a very specific need. We also support the TDY pilots. Uh, I know you guys have seen the uptick in TDY um, every month. And so with those assignments, we have a TDY guide and uh, an opportunity for pilots to ask questions as they are suddenly involuntarily or voluntarily TDY'd. There's very specific rules that apply to those pilots, but sometimes those are just like once in a career, all of a sudden you're facing TDY. Next slide, please. There we go. Um, Compass Project, if you are a user of the Mobile app, Compass has its very own little compass there. You can click on that and that will take you to the Compass documents as well as the on the quick links. Uh, we're about six down there in the blue um, and you can go on that and that will take you to the Compass page. And the Compass page is a page for all pilots. So it does have stuff for reserve. It does have things that apply to new hires but it has things for all pilots. Compass doesn't produce any of these documents on our own. We produce them with the cooperation of our great committees at APA. And this information is available for you. I'm flying with a guy who's been here nine months and uh, showed him the new hire, uh, the or sorry, the reserve uh, short call notification table. He's like, where do I get that? We well, can get it on your iPad in 365, but it's also available on Compass under reserve. There's a plethora of information here. We try to keep it fresh. We work very hard to stay on top of these documents. Um, and uh, certainly anything else that you have from the company or from APA that is um, produced after these documents, that would be the controlling document, but Compass has this available for you. Um, if you see a document that Compass needs, something that you see is a, you know, Compass has always been a CNE, fill a need type committee. We're happy to work with uh, the other committees to produce documents. Um, right now, we are working on an updated survival guide. We had one that came out last uh, fall, and now we're updating that. It's a quick reference guide. We work with uh, safety, flight time, duty time, scheduling, and con contract compliance. 
And that document will be pushed to you as soon as it's ready, which should be in uh, the, within the next week or so. It'll either be an email or a text or both. Um, and you'll get that from Compass. And that gives you an opportunity to look at um, all of the, basically something that you can download on your iPad. And if you don't have Wi-Fi available, you're still able to access those charts. Okay, so I've shown you what Compass can do for you. The question now is what can you do for Compass? I mentioned we need sponsors. We desperately are in need of people to um, pick up the load as we are getting new pilots. Uh, there's over 300 pilots in uh, sponsor capacity with Compass. Um, some of them sponsor specifically the family navigation or the TDY, whatever it might be but most of them sponsor new hires. And that's uh, where we recommend you start so that you can get used to the way we do things at Compass. There is training provided, there is support provided. You do not need to know the answer to every question. What you need to do is be a person that's willing to stand in the gap for a pilot who has questions. And like I said, you normally start with the new hires. Um, we just need someone that's willing to do it and see it through. We've always said no pilot left behind. Uh, if we ever get news of a pilot, which occasionally happens, who wasn't uh, contacted by their sponsor, that's like one of those things that we desperately try to avoid. So if we wanna be on the team, then please be on the team and uh, support your pilots. Um, it's an opportunity for you to do something positive um, at a company that's sometimes really frustrating to work for. Working with a new pilot is a very positive and it's a good way to help somebody else out. You'll learn a ton because they'll ask you questions that you don't know the answer to, but in your process of searching out that answer, you'll learn something too. Um, it's a really positive experience. We've been doing this now for 13 years, I believe. And it's uh, one of those things that makes, um, it's a great way to engage with APA. Now there's two ways for you to find out about being a sponsor. One is to, if you're a tech savvy person, unlike myself, you can uh, find out about being a sponsor by going to the QR code we're gonna put on the screen in a second here. There you go. If you wanna take a picture of that, That'll take you there. Otherwise, if you go to that same uh, Compass app, and if you go on there, it says, we need you in green. So click on that. That'll take you to an information video, informational video that's just a couple minutes long, and that gives you an idea of what it is to be a sponsor. And then um, an application where you just fill, out, fill in the lines, and, and we will reach back to you and talk to you more about getting you started. All right, thank you, Carrie and, uh, and Compass Project. And the only thing I'll add is, um, because I go to the new hires, it's not a two month wait for the new hires right now, it's actually a three month wait. Um, so thank you for that. Next up is the training committee. We've got uh, Anne-Marie Tazar, the chair of the training committee. Anne-Marie. All right, you got me? Good evening, everybody. Yeah, loud and clear. Just got a couple of things to say. Um, if you were scheduled to go down for CQT anytime soon, uh, a couple of things could happen to you. One is you can get a call that says don't bother coming because they already know they don't have check airmen for you or check pilots, I should say. Uh, two, you get there, you fly all the way down there and they send you home. So you just went a day trip on an airplane or you get there and you get to the last sim or halfway through it and they steal your check airmen also. Um, don't be surprised when this happens because the company have been very upfront about what their priority is and their priority is initial pilots new hires and upgrades so if they're having those classes running and they need somebody they will take it from the cqt and not blink an eye it's happening a lot i just want to give you all a heads up about that also um to our special qualification airports we'd like to say if you feel like you need a check pilot don't hesitate to ask for one 
Um, even though the company removed the uh, requirement for check pilot in Guatemala, we didn't actually see any kind of risk assessment for that. And I think we all kind of know it wasn't done out of the airports, not challenging. It was done out of, we don't have enough check pilots to send them down there. But if you need one, um, please ask for it because by not asking for it, you're actually agreeing with them that, hey, we don't really need one down there. So don't second guess it. If you want to ask for it and get it. And lastly, we'd like to remind our new captains, since we have so many of them, um, be very conscious of what your flight time is. Um, we've had some incidents where pilots have uh, gone to special requirement airports that require like 75 hours and they don't have 75 hours because he's diverts, big deal. Uh, schedulers don't catch it, dispatchers don't catch it, the captains don't catch it because they're new and they're overwhelmed. So just to say, hey, keep, keep your eye on the ball for everything because you're kind of out there on your own. And um, but EPA training is always here for you and the rest of the committees that we uh, that we have for you. That's it. That's all I got. Three points and questions. All right. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Okay. Uh, Security committee, Paul Nelson, Security Committee Chair. We had a couple of um, these weren't actually sound offs as well, but I put them into a security uh, slide here. So I'll just read these to you, Paul. Just read about the new TSA wrap back. What is it? What is the APA position? Uh, good afternoon. Um, I pray you can hear me all right. Yeah, loud and clear. Okay, perfect. All right. So uh, other than an acronym-heavy TSA-mandated program, um, RAPBAC is a daily criminal history records check of transportation workers, airport workers, who have access to the SIDA, the security identification display area. So that doesn't mean if you have a SIDA badge, it means that if you have access to the aircraft, you're going to have a daily criminal history records check. Um, it was a test program done at Dulles Airport, TSA, uh, in cooperation with the FBI using their next generation identification program or system, um, implemented it on a test basis at Dulles Airport. It's now expanded to other airport operators and now the airlines. So what it's going to require is the airlines now are going to have to collect another set of fingerprints from you. They'll be submitted to the FBI and on a daily basis, they're going to check and see um, if you've had any kind of conviction um, or um, basically felonious conduct, uh, about 29 different offenses that would disqualify you um, or bring attention to you and, and potentially keep you away from the CIDA. Um, and it's going to be done on a basic, on a daily basis. Um, the the company is trying to figure out how they're going to comply with the, the fingerprint um, um, mandate they're going to install machines. There's been talk about doing them at the bases. There is a, a fingerprint machine at pubs um, in DFW uh, and then at the new hotel. Um, that's basically it, wrap back in a nutshell. Um, as far as KCM, we can address that. Um, there's been a number of messaging um, that was conducted through CCI and through the security committee. Um, KCM regarding the unpredictable screening procedures that the um, TSA KCM has implemented. Um, notably, uh, it, it appears really anecdotally that we're probably at a 50% um, random selectee basis. What they've changed is instead of each airport determining the number of randoms, headquarters determined uh, how many randoms were selected. So at the end of the day, Cooperate, graduate, stay calm. 
uh, go through the procedures that they ask you to do. You're not being picked on. Um, there'll be, there's truly an issue is if your KCM has been suspended. Um, and that's, there's other processes that we can go to find out what's going on with that. But basically cooperate, graduate, and document once you get through the security screening process. And if there's any kind of departure delay as a result, document that, send that via SERS report. Because at the end of the day, while it is a supposedly, and they hold themselves out as a, this cooperative venture with Alpha and uh, TSA, uh, it really only in name. Um, talking to with, with my peers, security peers um, at uh, Alpha and um, both national and at the, the major airlines, everybody is feeling the sting and the frustration Everybody is. Um, at the end of the day, we have to make it management's problem um, because they weigh in through A4A to make changes. And that's all I've got. All right. Thanks, Paul. You. All right. Last but uh, certainly not least, the negotiating committee. I believe we have uh, Greg Shaman and Tracy Perella up. Um, anything that you guys want to provide in terms of negotiating update uh, beyond what we've provided already? Hope we didn't lose these guys. Greg or Tracy, are you guys up? Hey, Chris, hey. while we're waiting for those guys, maybe you could go ahead. I heard you say it before at the beginning, but just give a, a recap, and it's already been in the journal, as to what the purpose of this week's meeting was and uh, where we're at in this whole process. Yeah, so... A big picture. Um, <clears throat> there's been obviously there's been a lot of movement back and forth between both negotiating teams. Um, the board, if if the negotiating committee can take general guidance from the board, but if they hit a point where um, they they need more specific guidance on how they're going to go forth, then they, the board has to be in session to do that. Um, so that was why the board was brought back in this week. The uh, um, one of the things that I, I mentioned is we don't have an AIP for the entire. Uh, the entire deal, but a number of AIPs on uh, a number of sections were put together. That was provided to the board. That was all new for the board to review. Um, so that was a kind of that was the primary thing that the board was doing this week. Um, and I do see Greg up here. So Greg, you ready? Yeah. Can you hear us? There we go. Loud and clear. All right. I don't know. Some sort of technical difficulty. All right. Um, just read the member, read the BOD update that they sent out, gave a synopsis. Uh, I know you got a lot of questions, so we're ready to get to them. All right, let's get to it. What's being done to stop the blocking of trips for OE? So uh, the parties have agreed to reduce the number of block sequences. Um, <clears throat> assuming we can get to a ratified agreement at some point here, negotiations will continue so we can finalize what that would look like in the end state. And we're gonna be using Delta and United as the comparators. As a point of reference, Delta, um, does not block any trips for training. United uh, doesn't block trips for training for captains. What they do is they run captain PBS first. Then they have a contractual provision where they can pull no more than 75% of the anticipated OE requirement from the pool of trips available to be awarded to first officer. So both Delta and United, no blocking of trips for captains. United does have a provision to block a certain percentage of anticipated OE requirements for first officers. So there will be a change there. How quickly it can happen is still to be determined. 
Um, but yes, the parties have agreed they are going to be reduced in the future. All right, next question. Why are we not negotiating a required minimum open time limit for the new TTS? Uh, we are negotiating those, uh, but negotiations are ongoing uh, regarding the limits for the new TTS. Okay, next question. Is there any effort to enable reserve pilots to trade days off? So this is one of those unimplemented provisions from 2012 that has to be prioritized for programming. I can't tell you when it's going to happen, but we are aware that it's, it is still one of the unimplemented items from 2012. Please explain uh, how plus up, uh, I think it's supposed to be plus up, me too pay rate clause would work. Is it only once during the new contract, once per year, or based on a percentage difference? All right, so negotiations are still ongoing regarding the snap up provision. And the most likely scenario would be um, a one-time snap up either to Delta or United, um, most likely with APA getting to choose when to exercise that option. And, and usually the way it works is you snap up to, to, to their rate of pay. Uh, we have equipment groupings. We don't have individual aircraft rates of pay like our comparators do. So there's a uh, formula that's used based on aircraft weighting um, that's been used in the past, and that's how it would be done um, as part of the snap-up provision. Why not take any pay rates offered from the company and absorb those completely into work rules that can't be cut so easily if the economy tanks later, especially with a pay rate match in the contract? All right, well, I just want to emphasize that there's going to be improvements made not only to work rules, but also to compensation. So we're focusing on both areas, not just one or the other. Why are we targeting senior pilots with additional vacation pay? If that's okay, why can't we fix data hire to match pay date and 16% 401k contributions for first year new hires? Well, we have spent substantial time trying to increase the value of a vacation day, which would affect every pilot. Uh, the company has not been responsive to uh, that concept. It's very costly for one and for two. Um, it drives a lot of extra training as pilots require more time off. And at a time when they have a training bubble, they're um, even less willing to address that concept. So that's why they threw the proposal out that they did about the extra week of vacation for those pilots with 25 years of service, uh, because it's really just a pay event, at least for the first handful of years, then it'll be biddable to the pilots. As far as um, the 16% 401k contributions, that's not a subject of these negotiations so that there's not going to be an increase in the company's 16% contribution in this negotiation. What's the proposal for 401k match? All right. Well, just to be clear, there is no current 401k match in our CBA, nor, there's a, nor is there a proposal to create one. AA does contribute 16% of your earnings to the 401k. Once you hit the annual cap, then everything that pays over is a spillover. As you know, the companies agree to what's called a market-based cash balance plan, which will allow pilots to take those spillover contributions and put them into another tax-qualified plan. Uh, but just to be clear, there is no 401k match in our CBA. Why are we not asking for 20% like all the other airlines? Well, I don't know for sure what every other airline's table position is, other than to say it would be rumor uh, and there's a huge difference between what another airline's table position is and what they might eventually agree to. 
why are we aiming for being the first contract to be signed in the major airlines? Well, we're not aiming to be the first, second, third, or last. You know, we are where we are in the process, and we may end up being first. But the overriding concern is that any potential um, agreement we bring to the board could be converted to a TA, and they can feel confident in sending it to the membership. But the fact that we may be first um, as part of this process is not, you know, part of the decision-making process of the board or the negotiating committee. Why do we not make it clear that we are asking for a cost of living increase to match inflation? So if we go to mediation, the negotiator has a clear view that we seek to halt the downward slide of pilot compensation and standard of living instead of just wanting more money. Well, if at some point the, we don't get an agreement here in the very near future and the, the board decides that, you know, the next step should be to apply for mediation, this issue is going to have no bearing on that decision-making process. Uh, the current APA proposal that's on the table contains three pay raises over a two period over a two year period of time. Why are categories related to pay still being proposed? A straight C pay chart would eliminate chasing the money and we believe saving company money. Seniority would fix who see, who who sits where. All right. Well I'm I'm not really sure what the this pilot wants to know with this question, but as you as everyone knows, we, we have a current pay structure. It's based on equipment groups. That is not going to be changing in this negotiation. Uh, regarding compensation, the current open items are specific pay rate increases, equipment overrides, and the snap-up provision. Is the negotiating committee working off the company's proposal for Section 12? Anything less than the company's proposal is a non-start. Well, the negotiating committee has accepted some aspects of the AP, of the AA proposal, and we've also proposed many other items which address such things as quality of life that were not addressed in the AA proposal. Uh, why are we not asking to be able to fly over vacation or other trip removal days so as to get double pay on those days? All right, well, First of all, it's a job issue. So the more productivity you allow individual pilots to do, the less captain jobs there are, the less wide-body captain jobs, and so on and so forth. But secondly, even the company actually pushes back on some of these concepts, such as allowing a pilot to fly over vacation. They might embrace some of them, uh, but they don't embrace every concept that necessarily allows a pilot to be more productive. And then, Greg, I'm going to I'm going to kind of jump in and jump back a little bit because there's a couple questions in the in the chat. You did answer the question on on data hire, but just to to reiterate, the data hire um, and 401k issue they they have they're not on the table. They're not in the proposals. They haven't been prioritized. Correct. That is correct. Okay, and the reason as to why is just that was not prioritized by the board of directors. Correct. That is correct. Okay. Thanks. And, and uh, also, you know, before we go on, you know, Greg, let's 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 open it up to the discussion we've had on the vacation. The way that the company issues vacation slots depends on how much vacation they have the issue, and and they can go ahead and reduce the number of slots over the high priority areas like Christmas and summer. If we allow people to double dip and basically bid a vacation as a senior pilot, and then be allowed to pick up. We're afraid, and this is this is a valid fear, 
that those, for instance, who are senior enough to bid vacation over Christmas are going to bid it just to go ahead and double dip with a premium trip right on that same uh, vacation day, thereby abrogating vacation for everybody. Uh, this is it's it's a double edged sword on the double dip for vacation. It's been discussed. It's it's not only a productivity issue. It's a quality of life issue. All right, uh, Greg, back to you. Why send the membership anything with pay rates that does not at least keep up with inflation, specifically take home pay? Well, I mean, the current pay proposal from APA would significantly increase a pilot's W-2 over the next couple of years, which is going to obviously include much more take-home pay, more 401k contributions and spillover, which you could then put into your MBCBP to use for retirement. Can we increase the days off for a small percentage of the reserve lines to 18 days off and some at 16 off? Southwest Airlines has had 14, 16, and 18 day off reserve lines for many years. Yeah, there's not going to be a reduction in reserve days of availability in this negotiations. However, um, there are several changes for reserves that have been agreed to, um, and they're all paid on top of your reserve guarantee. The first one is that there's going to be a 515 pay no credit. Um, penalty to the company if they schedule you into a duty-free period. Um, reserve pilots, if they are reassigned, are now going to be paid the 50% reassignment premium pay for all reassigned flying. Um, if you are converted from long call to short call duty on your last reserve day, you're going to receive a two-hour and one-minute pay no credit uh, on top of your reserve guarantee if they don't fly you on that day. Um, Additionally, if you um, voluntarily, and this is voluntarily, volunteer only, if you voluntarily participate in DOTC on your last DFP prior to starting your first uh, reserve available day, and you're awarded a trip with a report time prior to 10 a.m., they are going to give you an additional two hours pay no credit on top of your reserve guarantee. And also, there's going to be additional training pay um, paid on top of guarantee um, for your uh, CQT. Yeah, and Greg, um if I could just add to, and thank you for all this good information, but the members need to know that right now, not due to their fault, but due to the company's fault, there is absolutely uh, very little, there, there's gonna be no chance we're gonna get productivity issue gives like the reserve days off. Southwest never had a bankruptcy. They're not negotiating off of a bankruptcy era contract. So they've been able to put in some provisions over the course of their time, that, that allow them these kind of quality of life issues like a 14, 16, and 18 day off reserve. Absolutely, I would love to have that. Absolutely, we'll go ahead and try to pursue it, but this isn't the time to pursue it. Unfortunately, we've got to go ahead and take what we can when we can. And right now, this is not the time to be uh, bucking for, uh, I guess, an 18 day off reserve line when we already know there's a training, there's a shortage of trained pilots, the company can't even, management's put themselves in this corner, they can't even get there from here. So, it, you know, we've got to approach this wisely and I think that that's how we're approaching it. Next up, is it true that the negotiating committee reduced the union's bargaining ask from 20% to 10% increase to pay rates? So what happened was we met with the uh, board of directors back on August 10th and we discussed um, the framework for passing an updated comprehensive proposal, which was designed to bring the negotiations to a conclusion. The board provided us that guidance back on August 10th. And on August 15th, we passed an updated proposal designed to do just exactly that, 
And there's been significant progress at the table over the past couple of weeks to bring these negotiations to conclusion, but we're not going to talk about specifics about what we did or didn't do with certain proposals. And, and pay is still being negotiated. Okay, thanks. Commuting to and from work has been increasingly difficult. What progress has been made with respect to pilots occupying an empty flight attendant jump seat? Well, first of all, the flight attendants actually have contractual language preventing pilot access to the flight attendant jump seat, and they've been unwilling to move on this issue. I know when they've been uh, approached about it before, they're like, well, are we going to get access to the cockpit jump seat, which is an entirely different issue that has implications well above a contractual change in their language. So the answer is no. That's probably never going to happen in the near future. Current sick time at 60 hours per year is on par with United, which currently is the lowest in the industry. What is the union asked this time in Section 6? Well, we spent several months trying to bargain back and forth on getting some sort of improvement to the uh, monthly and overall um, yearly accrual and unsuccessful at accomplishing that. It's an extremely expensive cost. And so priorities were placed elsewhere to other issues of value to the pilots. Uh, but one thing that the company has agreed to is that the elimination period for LTD is gonna be reduced from 90 to 60 days. So for pilots with little or no sick time, there'll be a much shorter bridge to get to LTD if unfortunately that's where you end up at some point. All right, uh, thanks Greg. And uh, anybody else who's there with you in the negotiating committee, that's the, the last of the negotiating questions. Uh, one thing I had, um, uh, Tim Dick, the Family Awareness Chair, texted me while we we're on here. Just want to remind everybody to check the News Digest tomorrow for October uh, Family Unity events. Um, there are still a couple questions that are being answered in the, in the Q&A. looks like we got to 36 of those, and there's two that are actively being answered. So uh, with that, um, I'd like to thank everybody for coming out uh, or to coming to Zoom, rather, uh, and, and being involved out here. We'll stick around to answer the questions in the Q&A for a few more minutes. But uh, with that, I'd like to thank also the committee members who uh, took time out to attend and, uh, and answer the questions and our staff as well. So thanks, everybody. And uh, we will see you next month, if not sooner. Good night, Chris. And everybody.